Section 30 of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Story, Volume 10, England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 30. William Pitt and the Stamp Act, 1766, by George Bancroft. William Pitt, the first Earl of Chatham, was a famous English statesman and orator. In 1756 he entered the cabinet, and from that time until his death in 1778 he was the greatest figure in English politics. He was a strong friend to the American colonies, in that he opposed their taxation by England. But in 1778 he opposed with equal strength the acknowledgment of their independence. The editor. On the 20th of February, while the newspapers of New York were that very morning reiterating the resolves of the Sons of Liberty that they would venture their lives and fortunes to prevent the Stamp Act from taking place, that the safety of the colonies depended on a firm union of the whole, the ministers at a private meeting of their supporters settled the resolutions of repeal which even charles stoneshand was present to accept and which as burke believed he intended to support by a speech early the next day every seat in the house of commons had been taken between four and five hundred members attended pitt was ill but his zeal was above disease i must get up to the house as i can said he when in my place i feel I am tolerably able to remain through the debate and cry aid to the repeal with no sickly voice. And he hobbled into the house on crutches, swathed in flannels, huzzaed, as he passed through the lobby by almost all the persons there. Conway moved for leave to bring in a bill for the repeal of the American Stamp Act. It had interrupted British commerce jeoparded debts to british merchants stopped one-third of the manufactures of manchester increased the rates on land by throwing thousands of poor out of employment the act too breathed oppression it annihilated juries and gave vast power to the admiralty courts the lawyers might decide in favor of the right to tax but the conflict would ruin both countries in three thousand miles of territory the English had but 5,000 troops, the Americans 150,000 fighting men. If they did not repeal the act, France and Spain would declare war and protect the Americans. The colonies, too, would set up manufactures of their own. Why, then, risk the whole for so trifling an object as this act modified? Jenkinson, on the other side, moved, instead of the repeal, a modification of the Stamp Act, insisting that the total repeal, demanded as it was with menaces of resistance, would be the overthrow of British authority in America. In reply to Jenkinson, Edmund Burke spoke in a manner unusual in the House, fresh as from a full mind, connecting the argument for repeal with a new kind of political philosophy. About eleven, Pitt rose. With suavity of manner, he conciliated the wavering, 
by allowing good ground for their apprehensions. But calmly, and with consummate and persuasive address, he argued for the repeal, with eloquence which expressed conviction, and which yet could not have offended even the sensitive self-love of the warmest friends of the act. He acknowledged his own perplexity in making an option between two ineligible alternatives, pronounced, however, for repeal, as due to the liberty of unrepresented subjects, and in gratitude to their having supported England through three wars. The total repeal, replied Greenwell, will persuade the colonies that Great Britain confessed itself, without the right to impose taxes on them, and is reduced to make this confession by their menaces. Do the merchants insist that debts to the amount of three millions will be lost, and all fresh orders countermanded? Do not injure yourselves from fear of injury. Do not die from the fear of dying. The merchants may sustain a temporary loss, but they, and all England would suffer much more from the weakness of Parliament, and the impunity of the Americans. With a little firmness it will be easy to compel the colonists to obedience. The last advices announce that a spirit of submission is taking the place of the spirit of revolt. Americans must learn that prayers are not to be brought to Caesar through riot and sedition. Between one and two o'clock on the morning of the 22nd of February, the division took place. Only a few days before, Bedford had confidently predicted the defeat of the ministry. The king, the queen, the princess dowager, the duke of York, Lord Bute, desired it. The scanty remains of the old Tories all the followers of Bedford and Greenville, the king's friends, every Scottish member, except Sir Alexander Gilmore and George Dempster, Lord George Sackville, whom this ministry had restored and brought into office, Oswald, Sackville's colleague, as vice-treasurer for Ireland, Barrington, the paymaster of the navy, were all known to be in the opposition. The lobbies were crammed with upwards of three hundred men, representing the trading interests of the nation, trembling and anxious, and waiting almost till the winter morning's return of light, to learn their fate from the resolution of the House. Presently it was announced that 275 had voted for the repeal of the Act, against 167 for softening and enforcing it. The roof of St. Stephen's rang with the loud shouts and long cheering of the victorious majority. When the doors were thrown open, and Conway went forth, there was an involuntary burst of gratitude from the grave multitude which beset the avenues. They stopped him, they gathered round him as children round a parent, as captives round a deliverer. The pure-minded man enjoyed the triumph, and while they thanked him, Edmund Burke, who stood near him, declares that his face was as if it had been the face of an angel. As Greenville moved along, swelling with rage and mortification, they pressed on him with hisses. But when Pitt appeared, the whole crowd reverently pulled off their hats, and the applauding joy uttered around him touched him with tender and lively delight. Many followed his chair home with benedictions. 
he felt no illness after his immense fatigue it seemed as if what he saw and what he heard the gratitude of rescued people and the gladness of thousands now become his own had restored him to health but his heartfelt and solid delight was not perfect till he found himself in his own house with the wife whom he loved and the children for whom his fondness knew no restraint or bounds and who all partook of the overflowing pride of their mother this was the first great political lesson received by his second son then not quite seven years old the eager and impetuous william who flushed with patriotic feeling rejoiced that he was not the eldest born but could serve his country in the house of commons like his father End of section 30. This recording is in the public domain.